Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Ridge Church Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, check us out online at theridgechurch.net. Also, be sure to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening today. So here we are in chapter 6. And Paul is kind of winding down his letter. He's, he's kind of said a lot of things about elders and teaching and false teaching and, and how that he wants Timothy to, to really guard the church there at Ephesus and, and make sure that the right elders are in place and that false teachers are put down and, and, and cast out, so to speak. Um, so many things, how he should live his life. He talks about the grace that he's been given by God. And so he's saying, basically, Timothy, anyone... God can save anyone. He saved me. You know, Paul is just saying, if he saved me, Timothy can save anyone. So, so love people, but be bold in your faith and, and do these things. And so he here gets to six, and, and there's going to be a, a couple things. We're not going to have a big idea today because there's a couple um, things that he's talking about here. We're going to look at verses one and two, and, and there's something there that we're going to look at real briefly, and then we're going to get into the rest of it, and it's really going to talk about, if you heard the reading this morning, uh, about about money, but it's not about money. It's about our heart. It's about people's hearts and how we, how we view material things, how we view finances, how we view money. Uh, and that even in the church here, or even in, in people that professed Christ, they were corrupted by that. And if you look at our world today, I think you could easily argue that money um, is, a, is a major corrupter. In, in every institution, in every home, in every heart. Um, it, I struggle with it. it it's, a, it's a challenge. This week has been challenging for me as I, I confront this passage and say, okay, you know, because what we'll say is, and you know, we'll see in here that in, in the text that, you know, it's hard for a rich man to, to enter the kingdom of heaven, right? It's easier for a, a to pass through an eye of a needle, right? It's what we'd say. And so one, many of us will say, well, yes, it must be hard for those millionaires. Whew, I, I don't know how they do it. And I want to tell you that you are rich. And, I, and I'm not talking about rich in the Lord. Hopefully you're rich in the Lord too. You are financially rich. And you say, well, Pastor Rodley, you don't understand. No, you are financially rich when it comes to the people in the world. You are probably one of the top 10 to 15% of the richest people in the world. And so when we come to this text, I do not want you to sit here and say, well, that's for somebody else. I don't need to worry about that because, man, there are billionaires and millionaires in the world, and I just make X, and that's not a big deal. No. Now, we're going to see that Jesus says, no, you are rich, and what you do with your life and how you handle your finances and how you look at these things and your perspective spiritually, where your heart is at, is the key how to live for him. So let's dive in. We're going to move quick. All right. Chapter 1 of 1 Timothy 6, verse 1, and just verse 1. Let all who are under a yoke of bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here because we don't have a lot of time. This idea of slavery, I know it's a struggle for people um, sometimes. So, well, did the Bible condone slavery? It does not condone it in the sense that it's not for it. God allows, in a sinful world, sinful things to happen. He establishes governments, and yet governments are sinful. He allows you and I to exist and be husbands and wives, and yet we are sinful. 
So just because something exists in Scripture and that God is allowing it to continue does not make it something that he ordains, that he wants, that he wills it to be. I don't know how much, I don't want to have to spend too much time because we could spend a whole message on going into to slavery and what it looks like. I will just say in the New Testament, in the first century, some historians believe that 60 million people were in slavery in Rome. So you say, well, why didn't they rebel? Why didn't the Jews rebel? Why didn't the Christians rebel against slavery and speak out against it? Because it was so ingrained that, that anything that the Christians would have done to rebel against it would have probably squashed them. They would have been wiped out. And, and so they come along and they, this is just the world they live in. They don't but Christianity ultimately, over hundreds and over a thousand years, begins to set people free from that type. Because as the heart changes, as the human heart changes, our actions change. And so there's a long history of, of setting people free, not just spiritually, but also from physical bondage and, and slavery. And yet today, around the world, there is millions of people still in slavery. And I, I don't want to get all the statistics, but even in the United States... There are children and other people in slavery and human trafficking and prostitution, and that's all forms of some type of slavery. And so we need to be praying that God will continue to change the hearts of people so that people can be set free. Here he's just saying that they're under this yoke of a bondservant. It is slavery. Sometimes in, as a bondservant, there's different things in Scripture about sometimes people were poor, and so they would basically sell themselves to someone and say, look, can I, it, it, will you give me a home? I'll work for you. I'll be your employee 24-7. And so there was that in Scripture. And, and so we're not here to parse out how much is one way and how much is the other, but that was taking place, obviously, in Scripture as well here in the first century. And then he says, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. And so I want to read you two other passages real quickly. And, and they're both from Paul. One is to Titus, another young man that is, is helping set up the church and kind of guide the church. And another one is when he writes to uh, the church, at, uh, writes in Colossians to the letter to, to the people there. I want you to see if you can see the common thread in these three passages. Titus chapter 2, verse 9 and 10. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, not, not stealing anything, not show, uh, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Colossians chapter 2, verse 24. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. What's the common, the big common thread? There's multiple common threads there. Our obedience and our Good behavior, even in difficult circumstances, honors God. And man, I'll tell you, that is a, that's just such a huge principle that we struggle with, even as the church, and especially as Americans, because we have our rights. 
We think no one can do this to me. No one should. And, and that may be true in a, in a biblical sense. Maybe it is sin that's happening. But what, what Scripture tells us, what God is really saying, is that the most important thing, and, and here really is, is the point for you today, the most important thing is God's glory. What, what God is saying is, 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 I want my glory to be known. I want to be made evident. I want you to be my image bearer. And the way in this particular moment... In slavery, that you can be my image bearer and bring most glory to me is be obedient to your master. And I don't know about you, but man, that just catches in my throat. Like, how do, like, Lord, that's what it says. And we're going to kind of unpack a little bit why I think as we move through this, why that is so important and why I think we can rest there. But don't miss that. The most important thing about creation, about your life, about all things that have been created is that it's all to bring glory back to God. And, and sometimes we don't understand how that works. We don't understand how, why he would choose to do it that way. And sometimes that's just a mystery. We don't see the tapestry for it all it is. We just see this little piece sometimes. So we have to trust him. But if you think about this relationship, and I want to bring it down to something that maybe we can understand in our culture a little bit. If you're a parent and you have children, do you want your children to obey you? The best way that they can bring glory to God is to obey you. You may not. Are you a perfect parent? No. Do you sin against your children? Yes. Should your children rebel against you? No. <laughs> I mean, I know we say, well, slavery is different. Maybe. Do you know that there's some some Pretty, pretty, pretty bad parents, pretty sinful, abusive parents. And I'm not saying that, that there are certain times and certain places that children shouldn't be removed or children shouldn't flee. And obviously, there are those cases. We're talking very high level here. Think about the employee-employer relationship. If you're an employee and you're working for someone, an employer that is not Christian and not very kind, the Bible says you should work hard. You should do your very, very best for that employer. Why? Is it because the employer deserves it? No. It's because it honors God. And the most important thing is that God gets glory. But you don't understand my situation. No, I don't. But I understand what Scripture says. Scripture says you should be a witness. In fact, what Scripture says ultimately is Jesus says, look, if you, if you only love people who love you, well, even even." Tax collectors do that. Even the heathen do that. There's no, nothing special about you. The world, you don't stand out. Everybody does that. But when you're in a, a difficult situation and you still honor the Lord, that means something. That's important. You know, when we're on the employee side, we want to attack the employer. And if you're on the employer side and you're the manager, you want your employees to do what you ask them to do. You want them to work hard. It's a matter of perspective. And what we really need to step away is we need to step away from that perspective and we need to step back into a godly perspective and say, well, what does the Lord want me to do? No matter what I do, do it unto the Lord. Do it in a way that honors him. As long as I'm in this position and tasked with this responsibility, no matter what it is, I should honor him. I should work. And I should work hard. That's something that is missing in our culture today. It is, in some ways, it is the cutting the fabric of our culture to pieces because we don't, we don't, even as believers, we don't operate that way like we should. 
Verse 2. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the grounds that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Teach and urge these things. Simple enough. He's saying, look, if you're... If you're Master becomes a believer, you shouldn't expect special privilege. You shouldn't want to slack off now because, well, yeah, he's my brother. I don't, you know, we're, we're believers. We don't have to do this. In fact, I will tell you, in the first century, it was, it was quite um, conflicting a little bit because sometimes, imagine this, sometimes you were a slave to a master and you both became Christian and you attend the local church, so to speak. The slave becomes an elder in the church. And in the church, the master submits to the slave. But outside of that, the slave still submits to the master. And you think, that's the way it worked. But once again, how we conduct ourselves in whatever situation we find ourselves. Here's the thing. That's even true in marriage. You know, Scripture says in Ephesians 5, right? Um, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. It doesn't say if she's wonderful, if, she, if she's a wonderful wife, if she's a good mother. It doesn't say anything. It just says you serve her and die for her. Yeah, but you don't know my wife. No, you still do that. Why? Because that represents Christ. It is the best witness to her and to your children and to the community and to the world is that you serve her as Christ serves you. Aren't we glad that, the, that God has really ordained it to work this way? Because he loves you in spite of who you are. He loves me in spite of who I am. That, and yet we, we, we want that. We agree with that. But when we bring it down to the earthly level, we say, no, but it can't work this way here because I don't want to have to do that. I don't want to have to be in that situation. But we love the fact that Jesus does this for us and saves us this way. That he leaves his throne, as it says in Philippians chapter 2, and he comes down to the earth and he takes on you know, flesh and he dies and he dies a brutal death on a cross. But what does it say at the end of that little passage? That every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. It brings glory to God. Submission brings glory to God. The son submits to the father. Husbands submit to Christ Wives submit to their husbands. Children submit to their parents. It is this structure that God has put in that just brings glory to God. And what we must remember is, is this is temporary. This sinful fallen world is flawed. It will not be this way forever. It is temporary. We have a home that we will be going to that will not be this way. Then he says at the end of that verse too, he says, teach and urge these things. There's some debate what, what that text is. Is it pointing to what he has just said? Is it, is it pointing to what he's going to say? I would tell you that I think what it's really doing is, is Paul is just saying, everything that I've been writing to you, Timothy, all this stuff I've been writing, teach. I urge you to teach these things, right? Teach them. It's really an imperative. He's telling him, you must do this. Verse 3. Now he shifts gears here and goes to a different situation. There's some false teaching um, that's taking place in the church. Um, obviously, there, in Ephesus, there was all sorts of pagan things, and, and people are coming into the church with different views and different things and, and, and trying to understand Christian doctrine and, and what it is and, and how they, and they always want to leverage it, right? It's one of the things that we do. We leverage things because we are sinful, right? Why do we do what we do? Because we want what we want, 
And we always leverage things for our benefit. It says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 3, it says, If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness. I'm just going to stop right there. So what, what, what is he saying here? Is he saying, look, there's, there's false teaching that's taking place, Timothy. So if there's people in the church that, that, that teach a different doctrine, he's kind of given three pieces of it here in different ways. If they teach different doctrine, that needs to be addressed, Timothy. And that doctrine that they teach needs to accord with the words of Jesus. So that doctrine needs to be rooted in Christ and who he is and what he has said. And not only that, that doctrine that should be correct and rooted in Christ, the way that we know that it is right is that produces godliness. It produces a changed heart, a different motive. There needs to be change that's happening in people. If it doesn't do that, then it's probably not from Christ and it's a different doctrine because it's not bringing and yielding fruit that it should be yielding. And the gospel always, always yields a changed and transformed heart to varying to lesser degrees. Obviously, we're all on a, uh, a sanctification place and we're changing and we're being transformed and we're not all at the same place. I understand that. But there is movement. Our heart has to change. We see this in Galatians chapter 1. We're just going to kind of hit a few of these. Galatians chapter 1, 6 through 9. Here Paul is writing to the church in Galatia and this whole area of modern day Turkey. And, and he's realizing that there's Judaizers that still think that people should be circumcised. They still think that we should uh, be under the Jewish law in many ways. And, and the gospel has come and it's been given to them and they've become believers. But Paul is, is concerned because he sees that, that false teaching is happening even in this region. And the same thing I believe is happening in different ways here at the church at Ephesus that he's warning Timothy about. And so what does Paul say in Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 to 9? He says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. See this different gospel. He's saying he's recognizing most of Paul's letters, call them epistles, almost every one of them addresses false teaching. Because the most important thing besides Jesus himself is that we teach it correctly, that we get the gospel right. That what God has done, what he's done through his son, through the death and resurrection, that we get it right and we don't let it be perverted or, or reviled in any way. And so it's precious and we must protect it. And I can tell you that when we look at our culture today, churches are perverting the gospel. They're not holding to sound doctrine. Why? Uh, because of sin, because we want what we want, because we feel cultural pressure, because, because I, I don't want to be alone in the world. I don't, I, I, I don't want to be persecuted. We just run for the hill because we want comfort. And we just think somehow, well, I love Jesus, and so isn't that enough? I'm going to go hide. But I, I'm not going to stand. He goes on here and says, not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even, this is so important, but even if we, Paul's talking about him and, and his followers, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As I've said before, and so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. In fact, he goes on there and says, even an angel comes to you, let him be accursed. It doesn't matter. Do you see how important understanding 
the gospel and the doctrines of grace and what he's done and what God has done is so, so precious. It is like a gift that he has given the church and we are to protect it, to, to cherish it, to share it, but we cannot let it be corrupted. And that's exactly what the enemy wants to do is to corrupt it. So what do we see here? Not only is the most important thing God's glory, but we should test all teachings and doctrine against Scripture. All teachings that you hear on radio, TV, what you read, you do not take the word for whoever's teaching. I don't care who they are. I don't care if they're your favorite, you know, pastor, theologian. Um, you go back to Scripture. You, you go back and you say, okay, is, is that a line with Scripture? First of all, is it, is it a different doctrine than, than what I understand the gospel to be? Is it words of Christ? In other words, does, does Jesus, is, is Jesus teaching this as well? I mean, is this the, the doctrine that Jesus teaches? Is, is this what I understand that comes from Christ? And is, is it yielding godliness? Are these benefits from this teaching, are they making me more like Christ or are they pulling me away? Are they making me more self-sufficient on my own or are they making me more dependent upon Christ? Do they make me think I'm not a sinner and I deserve a lot of good things or do they remind me that I am a sinner and only I've been saved by the grace of God and that overwhelms him and I'm so happy about that. And I'll tell you, there's a lot of teaching out there, folks, that is not leading you to the life of godliness. They're leading you to a life of, of self-importance, of of your best life, right? And, and look, I mean, I am no one's judge in that way. But I'm telling you that we, I, as a pastor, as an elder of this church, has been tasked with trying my very best by God's grace and the Holy Spirit working and, and, and really just crying out to him to say, Lord, help us to teach truth. Over the last six months, there have been people that have walked out of this service because of things we have said in the middle of the service. And they've not come and talked to me. I've tried to reach out to them. They will not talk to me. I don't think it was harsh. I don't think we were harsh. Now it's maybe self-serving because I'm saying I don't think I was harsh. Just so happened both services were ones that I was preaching, but I don't know, you know. Um, maybe, they didn't, maybe they didn't like the, I don't know. But does that mean, and look, my heart broke. I know the, the one person for sure, and I've I mean, I was trying to build a relationship with this person. It was going well, and I thought, the Lord is working there. And, you know, my, my flesh wants to say, oh, I need to apologize somehow. I, I need to go. And now I said, is everything okay? I texted, and I said, I, I, my guess is it has something to do with what we, we taught, and would you be willing to talk about that? And he's very loving, and they just never responded to me, and they never came back. My heart is burdened for that. But folks, we have to be so careful right there in those moments because what the world is doing is saying, see, you need to come over here because you're, you're pushing people away, Raleigh. That's not, that's not what God wants. No, God, God brought a sword to separate. There's wheat and there's chaff. There's sheep and there's goats. We should always be trying to say, come on over, be a sheep, Right? Yes, and we should lay our life down to try and get that to happen. We can't save people, but we need to share the gospel. As Brian said, we need to be bold and share the gospel in love, pray for people, be on our knees for people. We need to do those things. 
But at the end of the day, we cannot compromise the gospel. We can't move away from it. And, and if we're going to be salt, what, is, what does Scripture say? Jesus says, if, if salt loses its saltiness, it's not even good for the dung pile. It's no good. And I just want to say, church, I want us to be salty, not like in a bad way. I want us to be flavorful. I want us to be preserved by, by the Scriptures. So we need to test all teaching and doctrine against Scripture. Got to keep going. Verse 4. So if anyone teaches this way and, and doesn't, teaching doesn't accord with doctrine, he goes on, he says, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, and evil suspicions. So now it's kind of the, the byproduct of what is happening. When you begin to teach these things, it's that you think you're right. There's a, there's a self-righteousness that's sweeps in. We can see this obviously in the, in the, in the Jews, in the, the Sanhedrin, in the Pharisees. There's this self-righteousness. But here he's talking really about, we don't know who these people are. We, we know that probably Paul is thinking about specific people that are in Ephesus that are causing these issues. He doesn't name them, but my guess is he understands who these people are. He's probably dealt with them when he was there for a couple years. And he's just reminding Timothy, Timothy, these people act like they know what they're doing. They're going to they're take you to the end of the rope, Timothy. They're going to debate you. They're going to try and get everything detailed and say, what about this? What about this? And he says, Timothy, they're conceited. They're not for the Lord. They just want to quarrel. They just want to do these things and fight. And what's going to happen is it's going to produce envy and dissension and slander and evil suspicions in the church. And that is unhealthy for the church. That still goes on today in churches. How we deal with that is very important. We need to lovingly address those things. We need to admonish those that, that are doing those things. As pastors, we have to be careful of that ourselves. I can get wrapped up into that, debating to the last T on some secondary or third doctrine and lose my love for someone and try and wrestle this to the ground and, and be hateful to someone and then they leave the church and I'm thinking, for what for? There are some things that we can just say, you know, I don't see it that way. Let's wrestle. Let's, let's talk about this. But at the end of the day, Jesus is on the throne. Yep. Has he saved you? Yep. Are you a sinner? Yep. Me too. We're saved by God's grace. Let's continue to battle for this one. Let's continue to wrestle this. Right? Second Timothy he writes in a second letter very, something very similar to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14. He says, remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Once again, those people are listening. You have to think about even in a, in a Bible study. Let's look at this way. In a life group, which we call a Bible study. Let's say you're having a Bible study and you're passionate about something and that's okay. I want you to be passionate about scripture. And, and, and you and, and someone else and maybe the the leader of the life group, you start to debate and you start to get down to the nitty gritty and there's, there's just this quarreling going on about this particular way of thinking about something. How do you think the people sitting there are viewing the gospel and the love of Christ? It's not a good witness. If you want to take that conversation aside a little bit afterwards, go to lunch together, you know, I, look, I love to debate. If you know me, I... And I'm not the smartest, you know, the sharpest pencil in the box, so sometimes I debate even when I probably am wrong. <laughs> um, 
You just ask my wife. She just would like me to shut up. But, um, and I'm, doing, I'm trying to do better. I'm trying to be slow to speak and quick to listen. But so we want passion. I'm not saying I don't want you to have passion about the scripture, but, but how we live that out, how we interact with people matters. Same thing, we, we see this here in, um, kind of let's go on to the next verse here in chapter six, verse five. And then he goes on, he says, and constant friction. Now, if these things are happening, this envy, dissension, and slander, and evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. And so something was going on here. First of all, this, this key is depraved of the truth, depraved in mind. Their thinking is not good. I tell people all the time in biblical counseling, God has given you a mind, a brain to reason, to think, to understand doctrine, to understand what God really did in history, to, to really understand what it means that, that we're sinners and we need to be forgiven and we need a substitutionary atonement that needs to happen, that Christ died for a specific reason to set us free, to take our sin on. Those are things that we have to think about. And yet everybody says, well, doctrine divides. Absolutely doctrine divides. And aren't we glad it divides? Because if it wouldn't, we'd be a hodgepodge of every belief. And, and yet that is happening in the world. There is in the UN, there's a, a group that is basically a world-type church that's forming. That all faiths come together. That's end time stuff, folks. And, and yet we stand by as believers. And I'm not saying that we need to go to the UN and try and change that. I'm saying we need to be rooted in the gospel and understand that doctrine divides, and that's okay. In fact, it's not only okay, it is right and good. And then he says, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. We're not sure here, but it seems that something was happening in the, in the early church there, that people were teaching these things and, and squabbling over these things, but somehow they were thinking that they could gain money. You know, any, any good thing um, gets corrupted, and, and maybe they're, they're corrupting the gospel here, and they're trying to, to either um, get people to give money to it, to support it, but yet it's not, it's not Christ-like. And so he's saying they're depraved of their mind, they're, they're deprived of the truth, they don't understand the truth, and, and they're thinking that this, this way of doing this is, is going to bring them gain, worldly good, worldly wealth. You could, you could argue that that's the prosperity gospel today. I, I, think, I think that fits this. I don't think that's a, exactly what's happening here, but, but the way of thinking could be translated to that today. We see it again in Titus when he writes to Titus chapter 1, verse 11. It says, they must be silenced, he tells Titus. Paul writing here. So since they are upsetting the whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. They're trying to gain finances, material things, maybe prestige, right? Because we see that they were conceited earlier in Timothy. We see this addressed even differently in the Sermon on the Mount by Jesus. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 through 23, we, we see the same heart issue, that, that people are doing things for the wrong reasons. We don't know what they're trying to do, why they're trying to do it, but it, it is clearly not for the Lord. What does the passage say here in Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, 21 through 23? It says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. 
but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, see the things that they're doing in the name of Jesus, but clearly we're going to see for the wrong motives and do mighty works in your name. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So our motive, even when we seemingly are doing things in the church, in the body, our motive matters. Our heart matters. The whole Sermon on the Mount is about the heart issue. The Jews lived one way outwardly and inwardly another way. And he's addressing the heart issue. And so what do we see here? What's the point of the passage? We need to be aware of people who exploit God for personal gain. Who God becomes a means to an end, either financially or materialistically or professionally. Beware of people who exploit God for personal gain. But then he shifts gears here. It's a great line in chapter 6, verse 6. But godliness with contentment, he says to Timothy, is great gain. Now he shifts, he says, but there is this godliness with contentment. That There is this great gain, Timothy. It is wonderful. I like how Paul kind of puts it best in, back in Philippians chapter 3. I'm just going to read verse 8. Paul says, indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For this sake, I have severed the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Something, Paul, Paul has a contentment here to say, I can give up my heritage, my, my lineage of being uh, uh, from the tribe of Benjamin. I was a Pharisee. I can give all that away. I can count everything that, that the world has brought me as rubbish. Why? Because I'm going to gain Christ. Church, it is not about, look, is it about going to heaven? Okay, yeah, I guess. It's about gaining Christ. This is about relationship. This is about we get to, to be heirs, be a brother and a sister with Christ. We, we have this relationship that we are seeking, that we have now as believers, and we're going to get to have that forever. It's, it's not just this, so much Christians want to say, oh, no, I'm going to be forgiven of my sin. I get to go to heaven. Why do you want to go to heaven? Do you love Christ? Is that what you want? Is that what's driving you? This, this person that has laid down his life, has surrendered his life, and has died for you, is that what's drawing you? Or is it, no, I, I just don't want to go to the other place. <laughs> okay, that's not. I worry for you that Jesus may say, I never knew you. You wanted to come to heaven, but you didn't want me. I mean, when we baptize, I want, I want to hear the people say, I want to be baptized because I want to bring glory to Jesus. I want, I want God to receive the glory for this because he has forgiven me. Where's this root of this foundation, I think? I'm going to keep on going there in Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 through 5. And I've shared this passage many times, but 2 through 5 is this, um, this He's writing to the church at Philippi. He's writing to his true companion, somebody that's probably going to receive the letter that then is going to share it with the church there at Philippi. And um, he addresses in chapter 4, verse 2, these two women that, that obviously Paul has known and served side by side with, and, and their name is Yodia and, and Sinchi. 
And he says in chapter 4, verse 2 through 5, he says, I entreat or encourage Euodia and I entreat Sinchi to agree in the Lord. So there's some issue going on here with these two women. It's, yes, I ask you also, true companion, this is kind of who he's kind of writing to probably, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the, the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be made known to everyone. So there's no need to quarrel. You can be calm. You can be reasonable. For the Lord is at hand. My personal opinion is the foundational piece of that passage. Many people just read right over. Whose names are in the book of life. What Paul is saying to them, and what he's saying to you and I, I believe, is that if your name is in the book of life, what do you have to quabble about? What do you have to argue about? We can talk, we can reason, we can debate a little bit in love, but if your names are in the book of life, you gotta get a perspective here in the world. The world is filled with sin. Yes, I struggle with it. I combat it. You combat it. We wanna support each other, we wanna encourage each other, we wanna help each other. At times, yes, we're gonna admonish each other. But we can say, but we are in Christ together. Our name is in the book of life. Let's, let's finish the race well together, arm in arm, bringing us together over that line someday for God's glory. That's why he put the church together, so that we can help each other do that. Do you want that? Are you willing to get in the muck to do that sometimes? Are you willing to say, have grace for people that are struggling and that have offended you in some way? Because that's what God is doing. He's put the church together and says, no, none of you are going to be perfect with each other. I mean, I've failed a handful of you. <laughs> so what's the point? We need to remember our commitment, our contentment is built on the promise of eternal life. See, I think what he's saying here is, is that we can rest in Christ. We can be content. Paul can be content and count everything as rubbish because he's, he's saying, my name is in the book of life. I'm having eternity with God. I'm going to spend eternity with Christ. He has saved me from my sin, something I could not do. Do you meditate on that very often? That you're a sinner saved by grace? I mean, do you just meditate on that truth and that beauty of that? That should bring you to your knees on a regular basis. So we see in Philippians 4, just a, a few verses later, what does Paul say? He says, not that I am speaking of being in need. He's talking to them about his personal situation. For I have learned that whatever situation, I can be content. He basically says, I can have much and I can have little and I can be content. Because none of it is going to go with me. <laughs> I don't get to take any of this with me. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way in 13.5. He says, keep your life free from the love of money. Notice that the love of money, it's not money that's evil. It's, it's our heart, what we do with it. And be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Jesus is saying, look, I'm, I'm never going anywhere. Why do you want that more than me? What is that giving you? Are you going to take that with you? Because you can't take that with you. Am I more important than that? When we have things and we, we want things, we live in a world that all things have been given uh, for our benefit, but, but we shouldn't worship them. They shouldn't become idolistic to us. Um, 
John Piper in a book, um, uh, I forget the name of it, basically says when you buy something, and I, we just bought a, a used car that was like a new car price, um, and we went, shopped for weeks and weeks and weeks, and I struggled. I mean, this is not, you know, we're not buying a Cadillac here, but it's tens of thousands of dollars. And every time we'd go to a lot, I'd see a car that's nicer. You don't think my flesh wants that one? That's why I don't want to do that kind of stuff. Because I know my flesh. I know what it wants. I I get tired of trying to kill it. (laughs) And so I just don't go. But we needed something. And for weeks, as my wife, I just kept, we're just leaving. We're not staying any longer. We're leaving. Well, wait, about that? No, we're leaving. Just leaving. And finally, we, we purchased one. And here's the thing that in the book, he says, the question that we ask is not, is it okay to buy this or spend this money on this thing? Because that's what we say. What's wrong with having this? Nothing. Not, not really. But I love what he says. He says, the question that we should ask ourselves is, how does having this bring glory to God? If you can answer that question. Well, it can bring glory to God because it's going to take me back and forth to my job and we need a good job. I want my wife to be safe I want her to be, and we want to earn money so we can be generous. We want to work. We want to be able to provide for our grandchildren. I mean, okay, there's ways to get there. But to say that I needed a $100,000 car, which obviously we're, we're very, very far from that, how does that bring glory to God? And I know I'm, I'm going to be stepping on some people here, but, but see, we, don't, we have to have an eternal mindset. God is, you own nothing, you, everything is on loan to us. But in America, man, we think we have everything. And we do. God has blessed us. But, but what are we doing with that blessing? Are, are we using it for his glory? Are we using it for his good? Are we using it to expand the kingdom? He doesn't want you to be poor. I'm not asking that. He never asks us to give it all away. He does with the rich young ruler because he knows the rich young ruler is bound by it. And so he's just pointing it out to him and saying, do you understand that you can't give it away? that you won't. I'm, I'm pointing something out in your heart here, dude. That's what I want you to see. He really wasn't saying, no, you need to be poor. Then you just become, we just read that a few weeks ago. He's saying, look, if you're a widow and you have family, don't burden the church. You guys take care of it. So, so he doesn't want people to be poor. He doesn't want the church to take care of you. We're not a socialistic type of church. That's not what we're about. We should help the poor that really need it. If you can work, you should work. If you have family, it should help you. It's the way it should happen. First Timothy chapter seven, seven, six and seven and eight. For we brought nothing into this world, and we cannot take anything out of this world. But if we have food and clothing, these with these we will be content. Okay, if I stripped everything from you except for food and clothing and some shelter, would you be content in Christ? Would he be enough for you? I wish we could all say yes. But I think you should ask yourself that question. Would he be enough? tiny little house, and maybe some of you already are living that way, and, and praise God that if you can be content, and, and man, just praise God that you can do those things. I was at lunch with a, a man recently, and he's growing in the Lord, him and his wife, and they have uh, three children, I think, and, and she's decided to stay home, and they have a very small home, and he, he works hard, and, and, and I just told him one day, I said, I'm so proud of you, you and your wife. 
she's decided to stay home or you guys have decided to keep her home to be with the kids and you're doing without things. For the glory of God, to raise your children, to be with them, to, to stewardship, have stewardship with them and to disciple them and raise them in the Lord. I think one of the reasons that God asks us to give to the church because he's saying, look, money's gonna, money's gonna hold you. You need to let it go. This isn't, look, I have all the, Jesus doesn't need our money. God doesn't need our money. He gives it and lets us use it as a, as a commodity to be able to show love and appreciation and to be able to help people. What, to gain worldly wealth? For what? You're leaving. <laughs> what does Jesus say? He said, you should store up in heaven because everything else is gonna rust and decay. I think about Chinese emperors and, and Egyptian pharaohs, you know, you if you've ever watched some of those or been to museums or watched some of those documentaries, there's whole um, armies that they've made that are going to go into the afterlife with them. Isn't it funny that we've discovered those people and all those stone things are still there? I guess they didn't go, right? But we're trying to even take wealth and, and power and prestige to the next life. Deprived of the truth, I would say. Job puts it this way in Job chapter 1, verse 21. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Verse 9. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Boy, that doesn't sound like fun. But he's just being honest. He says, many that desire to be rich. There it is. It's not the money. It's the desire. It's the want. It's the craving that draws us. It was the craving in the rich young ruler. He had everything. He, he was able to say, no, I've done all the law. I've done those things, Jesus. And Jesus says, okay, then go and sell everything you have and give it to the poor and come and follow me. And he says, no, I can't do that. In fact, he says he walks away sad because he's getting to the heart of the issue. It's the craving. It's the thing that, that tempts us. And so what's the point here? We need to kill every desire to be rich as the consequences can be deadly. I'm not saying that you need to give all your money away. I'm not saying that you need to be poor. I'm saying you need to kill every desire to be rich. If you are earning funds and you are generous and you, you love the, the Lord and, you, and you're, you're helpful to people, to your family, to, you know, to the church, to the needy, to the poor, to mission fields, Praise God that God has given you the gift to be able to earn money. Praise the Lord. Earn a bunch of it. But be generous. That's why many of us, you know, I don't, I don't, we don't preach 10% tithing per se. Because I'll just tell you what, if, if you're making $300,000, I'm of the belief that says, I don't think you should stay at $30,000 in your tithe or in your gift to the to the church. You should be pouring it out. This is, this is not a number that we're just supposed to hit. He's just saying, look, here's a, here's a good number to kind of say, here's how some a target to go to, but I want to be able to get to the point where I'm giving more than that because I can't take any of it with me, wife, and I can't take, as soon as we get a raise, we're looking at, how can we do this? Instead of saying, and I do this, oh, now we can have a bigger car. Now we can get a bigger house. Now maybe you need a bigger house. You got a bunch of kids, you, you know, I get that. Maybe you need a bigger car, you need a van because you can't all pack in a little tiny car, right? I get that. I'm not saying you can't have things. I'm saying, where's your heart though? Do you ever think, I got a raise and how can we be generous now? We couldn't do it before, but now we can. Is that what your heart is saying? Because I want it to be saying that. I think the Lord wants it to be saying that. 
Remember the man that built bigger barns to store up his wealth? And he says, you fool, today your life will be taken from you. And don't miss these things. This is all over scripture. And from the words of Jesus, this is not some, you know. Matthew 13, verse 22. As for what was sown among thorns, here's the parable of the sower. This is one who hears the word, but he cares for the world and the deceitfulness of riches chokes the word and proves unfruitful. Not a believer. Chokes it out. Psalms 49, 16 through 19. Do not be afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases. For when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. For though, while he lives, he courts himself blessed. He counts himself blessed. And though you get praise when you do well for yourself, his soul will go to the generation of his fathers who will never again see light. Psalmist is pretty clear about the danger of being conceited and wealthy and living for wealth. I said this earlier, Matthew chapter 6, Sermon on the Mount, 19 through 21. Do not lay up treasures for yourselves on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. All right, verse 10, last verse. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Okay, not a word we use often. This idea that Paul is just saying many have had this love, this desire in their heart to chase after these things. And I don't have time to get into this, but it is a root of all kinds of evil. Everything emanates out of a desire to have money, and it allows us to do all sorts of evil. We, I mean, it, just, it opens up every door for us of lust, of things, of materialism, of power, of greed, it is, it is the thing that allows all those things to take place. And so he says it's the root of it. And we need to kill the root. Every desire that, that brings that. This craving. In Luke chapter 18, verse 24 through 25, it says, Jesus, seeing that he had, talking about the rich young ruler here, had become sad. How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Man, it's just, I've just learned that we need to make sure that we don't think that we are not rich and that it's somebody else. It's us. And then we need to take these, these passages and it says, well, how did they wander from the faith? It's not that they were believers and, and they were born again believers, regenerate believers, and then they left because of wealth. I want to say, I think what he's trying to say is just, there are people that have, have come to hear the gospel and, and they're in the gospel in the church. They're, they're hearing the word. They're living amongst the, the believers. But because the worldly systems of wealth will bring them away, and they never, they'll wander away from the, the body of faith, the people, the hope that is in Christ before they ever are transformed by it. So what's your takeaway today? 
How we live says everything about who or what we love. How we live, how we work, how we're honest, how we handle money, says everything about what or who we love. And for us, it should be about who we love, not about what we love. I want to leave you with this passage from Solomon found in Ecclesiastes. Wealthiest man in the world. Some historians believe maybe up to $2 trillion. Also one of the wisest men in the world, at least at moments. Ecclesiastes is a a unique book. He's pondering life and all of the things that that God has given. And he says in chapter 2, verse 9 and 10, he says, So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep it from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. So he's saying, I have everything, and I didn't hold back anything. I took whatever I wanted to please my flesh. And what does he go on to say? Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and striving after the wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. It all came to naught. Folks, you can't take it with you. But God sure can use it in your hands if you are generous for his glory and his kingdom. I just want to encourage you to remember that how you live says everything about who you love or what you love. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for our time together today. I thank you for your word. I thank you for the truth of it. I thank you for the spirit that allows us to conform to it. You've set us free in Christ, and so, Lord, help us to live in such a way that we honor you with our lives, that what we devote ourselves to, that we will not get wrapped up in chasing things and material items, that, that yes, maybe we have the gift of, of finances, we have the gift of earning and money, and praise God for that, Father, and help us to be able to then to be able to be generous in the world. Help us to store up treasures where it matters. Help us to love you above all. You are the only thing that lasts. And you're the only thing that is good. I pray that it will be enough. You are enough. Help us to realize that. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Thanks again for joining us today. If you have questions about this message or about the Ridge Church, you can contact us at info at Have a blessed day.